two more weeks in this series. We have two more weeks in, um, in this 12, uh, well, because of Pastor Troy, 10 extraordinary women. Um, very excited about that. And then on what date? August 18th, we start our new series. And August 18th, the schools will, will be back open and kids will be back there. Come on. Apparently, none of y'all have school-aged children. Can we get it? Praise Jesus. They're going back, right? I mean, like, why are you still here all summer? That's all you are. I'm very excited about that. But I'm excited about our new series. But, man, we have two... Two women left, extraordinary women left. I had to cut two because of Pastor Troy, and they're great. And, you know, when Troy gets to heaven, they're going to be sitting there going, really? I wasn't good enough for you? Um, so that's, that's Pastor Troy's problem, right? Um, but we have, uh, we have two more left, and I'm excited about these two. And uh, when I was culling through the ones that Troy didn't want, um, I, I, I landed on these two to finish with. And, and I love Mary Magdalene is where we are today. And when you say Mary Magdalene, immediately you have an image that comes through your head, Right? Immediately, when I talk about Mary Magdalene, you start thinking about someone. In fact, somebody challenged me, two people challenged me on my sermon, um, uh, the, the last uh, service here. At the, when they were walking out, they're like, you know, uh, this is what we've heard. I'm like, yeah, and I just totally dispelled all those rumors, right? Listen to me. What you think of Mary Magdalene is not what you should. Who you think she is is not who she really is. She is an extraordinary woman for certain but not maybe necessarily in the ways that we think or have been told. Now, what's different about last week, we have Anna, right? We talked about Anna, and most of you should now be able to knock Anna out of the park. Like, you know exactly who she is, even though there's only three verses written about her, and at the beginning of the sermon, none of you knew who she was. Mary's a different story. Mary Magdalene, there's, there's quite a lot more written about her in the Scriptures, in fact, in all of the Gospels, and even more so written about her extra-biblically, outside of the Bible. Even documentaries have been made, and historical documentaries have been made um, on, on TV, history, history Channel, and things like that. And even a blockbuster, blockbuster book and movie was made based on a fallacy of who Mary Magdalene was. So what are those things, right? Mary Magdalene, when you start talking about Mary Magdalene, a few things should come into your head. And a lot of them will come from these Gnostic Gospels. They're these, these Gospels that were written, written out, way outside of the time that Scripture was written, many, many centuries later when people were trying to find this secret hidden passage into who Jesus is and into the kingdom of heaven. And these Gnostic Gospels were, um, there's multiples of them, but two of them specifically mention Mary, the Gospel of Mary, you should have known that one, um, and then also the Gospel of Philip. And in these two Gospels, um, these stories that, uh, that scholars don't really put much credibility in, um, certain things rise to the surface about who Mary is. One of them is that she was the chief competitor for Peter for leadership in the church, right? It's like, we're the feminists. Come on, there's always a woman behind the man, right, leading things. There, this was the big argument that she was actually the real leader behind Peter. The other one, um, which is a little um, more blasphemous, is that, that Mary, and this is the one that most of you probably will be familiar with, is that Mary uh, was the lover and then wife of Jesus Christ and then the mother of his children. Has anybody ever heard this? If you've seen the Da Vinci Code, you know, right? Tom Hanks told us this. 
Um, and, and so th that is where the Da Vinci Code kind of sprung from because Leonardo da Vinci then portrays, he, he does this painting. He doesn't believe this, by the way, but it comes from this painting of the Last Supper. Leonardo, we have it actually in our green room back here. We have Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper painting up there. And you know, it's the straight table where they're all sitting side by side, Jesus in the middle. And then there's all these people, which by the way, is not how the Jews would have sat. They would have sat around a round table, but that's neither here nor there. And the person to Jesus's right um, is very female looking. Looks very much like a girl. And so, you know, what Dan Brown did with the Da Vinci Code is like, it's like oh, well, that's Mary Magdalene, his wife, who's sitting next to him. And then he goes on this trail for the, the descendants of Jesus and all that stuff. But that's just a, a load of hoo-ha. Nothing's true about any of that stuff. No actual credible scholar believes any of that. Man, it made a good movie, but it was all wrong. And a lot of people went different places because of that. So while it was entertaining, it was a bad movie in a lot of regards. The other thing that you might remember or hear about Mary comes from the gospel stories themselves and a misunderstanding. In Luke chapter 7, you have this, um, this woman who is called a woman of the night. She is called a prostitute. She comes in to this place where Jesus is having dinner. And Jesus is seated at the table and she falls down, if you remember the story, she falls down at his feet and begins to weep tears on his feet and she, she cleans his feet with her tears and uses her beautiful long hair to dry his feet. A lot of people said, oh, well that's Mary Magdalene. The other occurrence is in John chapter eight. In John chapter eight, you have this woman who is about to be stoned because she's been caught in adultery. And she, and she has lived this really horrible life and so the, the, the Pharisees are going to stone her and remember the story, Jesus kneels down and he starts drawing in the dirt and in the sand and one by one the guys leave and then he's left with her alone and he's like, hey, where are your accusers? She's like, they're gone. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I don't want to accuse you either, either just go and sin no more. Both of these stories, uh, church history and tradition has said have, are Mary Magdalene but nowhere is there real credibility. In fact, in Luke, it's even way less likelier than in John. But in Luke, because in Luke chapter seven, remember last week we talked about the fact that Luke is, was an historian and, and he was very accurate in the things that he wrote and he, ve he took very great care in listing people's names, situations, all those different things. In Luke seven, this woman shows up and right after this in Luke eight, Mary Magdalene is mentioned for the first time. Right after Luke 7, when, when he says this, this prostitute comes in and does this whole thing, she's an unnamed woman, yet 10 verses later, he's dropping Mary Magdalene's name for the first time. Luke would not have done that. There's no way Luke would have written something and written about someone that he had the name for and not put the name in. There is no way that Mary Magdalene was the prostitute that we always give her credit for. There's no way that she was the woman who was caught in adultery. There was certainly no way that she was Jesus's wife. So why is she significant? Why is she powerful? What do we know about Mary Magdalene? Well, we know her name, Mary Magdalene. And what that tells us is that ain't like Mary Crocker. Magdalene is not her last name. Magdalene is where she is from. She is one from Magdala, Mary of Magdala. And the reason that Luke calls her this, and then Mark will as well, is to differentiate her between the other Marys. There's a lot of Marys going on. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary of Bethany. There's Mary Magdalene. 
And so you have this woman from Magdala. And Magdala is a small village in the Galilean region. It's, it's right around the area of Capernaum, which is where Philip, I mean, where, where Peter and Andrew are from. And it's right around the area where most of the disciples came from and where Jesus did most of his ministry. She's in that neck of the woods, right? She's in this small little fishing village right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. She comes from there. So we know that about her. We also know that she was a disciple of Jesus, as is said by a couple of the gospel writers. She followed him. We know too that she followed him as far as the cross, the gospel stories, they all talk about this, that she is one of the women who is standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus is nailed and when Jesus dies. It says that they are there until the very end of his life. It then says that she goes to the tomb and she knows and she sees where they place his body. While the disciples have run off, while the men have run away screaming like a Monty Python movie, thank you, Mary is at the tomb. And then she comes back, it says, to the tomb with, with, um, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and um, James's mom, and they come back to anoint Jesus, to do the proper burial procedures, because if you remember, it was close to the end of Sabbath, and they just had to wrap him and get him in the tomb before the Sabbath started. So they come back to honor the rabbi the way he should, believing that he is dead. You don't take burial spices to a tomb unless you think the dude's dead still. And so they show up at the tomb. And it is Mary who first sees the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene is the first one. And she is the one who goes back to the upper room where the men are hiding and tells them the tomb is empty. And in John's account, John and, and Peter run and sprint for the tomb and they go into the tomb and Mary comes up behind them. She follows them back. They go in the tomb. They see that Jesus isn't there. They see the cloths lied on the tomb and then they go back to the upper room. And then Mary enters the tomb. Mary Magdalene enters the tomb. This is huge. She goes into the tomb and the angels are there and they're like, who are you looking for? She's like, Jesus, he ain't here. She's devastated and she goes out, if you remember, and she falls on the ground and she's weeping and someone walks up to her and she believes that it is the gardener. And so she says, hey, 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 wherever you put Jesus, just tell us and we'll go get him. Wherever you've taken the body of my Lord, just tell me. And then she hears this, Mary, right? Oh, man. What a powerful moment that is because it's, it's Jesus saying her name and immediately she knows who he is. She is the first person that Jesus reveals himself to after his resurrection. The first one. You think in heaven she's walking around going, hey, Peter, leader of the church, awesome. Who saw Jesus first? I did. That's right. What? First one right here forever. She is the one that Jesus chose to come to first. He could have come to John and to Peter when they were in the tomb, but he didn't. He came to Mary. That is extraordinary. But why is it so extraordinary? Because of who she was. because of Luke chapter eight. 
And Luke chapter eight is the first time that she comes onto the scene in scripture. And it says this in verse, in verse one. Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages. Now it says soon afterward, which just means something previously happened, right? Jesus has been doing some stuff. He's been dropping some knowledge. The Pharisees have been getting more and more angry with him. And as such, the synagogues have shut down to him. So he's starting to travel around and he begins to teach in parables. So it's only like the toughest of the tough are gonna follow Jesus at this point right now. So the nearby towns and villages preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, no surprise there, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many other who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. These are the words of the Lord. Now in this, there's a couple of things. One, it is not uncommon, it was not that uncommon for women to follow a rabbi. Those women would have been unmarried or widowed or have no responsibilities back at home and they were free to kind of do those things. Not super uncommon. It wasn't a huge thing, but it, was not, it wouldn't be like, whoa. The second thing is, it was not uncommon, and this was actually less uncommon, um, for women to support the ministry of a rabbi. So when it says this, they were supporting the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, again, not super uncommon. If the woman came from means, if the woman had some sort of inheritance, or if her husband was wealthy enough, it was seen as a noble act to support the ministry of a rabbi and his disciples. Not uncommon. But there are some uncommonalities in this. And the first one you should have caught, Mary Magdalene from whom Jesus exercised seven demons. Wait, what? Right, I mean, that's, that, that's kind of like seven demons. Feels like a lot. Like, I mean, I, I don't know, like, I just, that's seven's, seven's a big number when you're talking demonically. Here's the thing, anytime a number is mentioned, there's a reason that the number is mentioned. I mean, because Luke could have said many demons, a few demons, a couple of demons, right? Scripture says that all the time. It says a few or many or a lot or, or very little. But then it also sometimes will say an exact number. And there's a reason why the number is said when the number is said. Seven means completeness. Seven has a huge meaning to it. How many days did all of creation take place, including rest? Seven. How many times does Jesus say you must forgive someone? Seven times 77, right? Seven is the number of completeness. And so what, what Luke is dropping here is, man, we don't know how many demons Mary had, but let me tell you, it was a truckload. It was a lot of demons. But what does that mean? Because here we go, some of you are like, oh my gosh, we're going Pentecostal. He's gonna start running up and down the pews. Some of you are getting really nervous about this stuff right now, and that's okay because you should be. Here's the truth of the matter, and we don't like to talk about it in the Western world because the devil has done his job. There are spiritual forces in this world that work against the kingdom of God. I'm glad you're sitting down for this. 
There are powers in this world that are not from God, that anytime you step forward in the ways that God wants you to move, they get angry and they make a counter move. There is a huge battle that goes on in the spiritual realm that we don't see or are we aware of all the time, but it does not make it any less real. There is a battle that is waging right now in this room for people to be turned off from the message that God is trying to give them because God is trying to speak to you through this message. And all of a sudden your grocery list just popped into your head. And all of a sudden something turns you from his face. There are demons that exist in this world. Now look, I gotta tell you, the demons that we face today are much cleverer and different than the demons that they did. Back then, because a lot of times when you have a demon, you would have, there's countless stories of Jesus healing people from demons and delivering them from demons. And, and a lot of them, most of them actually, take place around Magdala. Strangely enough, where Mary is from, in that region of Galilee. He does a ton of it around there. And what would happen is these people would be out of their mind, right? They would be crazy. They would be talking weird. They would be violently doing stuff. They would have seizures. They would do all sorts of things. Now, modern day people, what we want to do is say, oh, well, you know, what was going on there was mental illnesses that they just didn't have the science and words to define. It was schizophrenia. It was depression. It was something like that. Yes, that could have been part of it. But no, that was not all of it. There were people who were possessed by demons. And what happened to those people? Those people were not treated well, right? It wasn't like they had the Magdala house for those demonically possessed. And they would take them to this wonderful little place and they put them in there and they care for them. No, they would cast them out. Remember the story when Jesus goes up to this one region and he finds a dude literally chained to stone so that he cannot move. Remember this? I mean, he was walking, and this guy is violent. And so what, are the, what does the village do? They chain him up at the edge of town and leave him for dead. And Jesus comes in, and the demon speaks to Jesus. And Jesus heals him. If you had a demonic possession, you were done in society. No one looked at you except to get away from you. No one included you. You were an outcast. No one cared for you. You were lost. Talk about a life full of darkness. A life full of despair and hopelessness. Imagine what it would be like then if you were someone like Mary who had the complete amount of demons. Imagine what her life would have been like. I guarantee you, I, I don't guarantee you, I bet that Mary didn't know who Peter was growing up or who John was or who Andrew was, but I bet you they knew who she was. You know what I'm talking about? Because, because that area of town, Galilee, that area of the, of the, of the, of the world was, was very much like, I always equate it to uh, the bubble to 09 and 12. It's like we have Almost Park, we have Alma Heights, we have San Antonio, we have Terrell Hills, and, and everybody lives in this little community and you all know what's going on in each other's lives, right? You all know, and your mama knows what you did before you got home. 
That was this area of the Sea of Galilee. Everybody knew everybody. It was small. They all lived. They all came to the same areas. They all, so I guarantee you those boys knew about Mary. They knew this crazy woman that lived at the outskirts of town that nobody cared for, nobody loved, that everyone thought was done. And then here she is at the foot of Jesus. Here she is supporting his ministry. Here she is at the cross. Here she is at the tomb. Here she is being spoken to by her Lord very first. Mary, my girl. Imagine what her life would be like if, if someone comes into her life and her whole life has been lost in darkness and here comes Jesus, and we don't know when he did it. We know he was healing people around this area all the time. He may have been walking by and goes, hey, get out of her. That darkness will no longer exist in her life because my light has come. Imagine what it must have been like for her to be liberated, to have lived a life in full darkness and to all of a sudden see the light. She never left his side. Her faith was too great in what he could do and what he could accomplish. She lived for him because she knew what it meant to live in a world of darkness and all of a sudden to see the light of Christ. She knew what it meant to have something oppressing her and to holding her down, to have some addiction, to have some depression, to have some physical abnormality, to have some mental thing, to have some demonic possession upon her and to have it liberated. You ever needed that? I mean, look, we don't have demons the same way that they had demons back then. They exist in this world, but you have to go to third world country to find them. Because third world country, they have a little bit different idea of religion and things happen differently. And so the d d demonic presence has to operate differently here in America, where we've intellectualized everything. That's why I love C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. I, I, if you've never read this book, you should read this book. But it's such a wonderful thing because it talks about the Western world and we're so smart about things that Satan doesn't have to do something it's outstanding to pull us away from Jesus. The, the, the demonic presence doesn't have to be some weirdly crazy thing. In fact, that doesn't work. What really works is just normalcy and okayness with everything that happens. What really works is, is Satan moving into this world and going, you know, you know what, they're just being who they wanna be, so just let them be. What's it to you? The great thing that Satan does is just whisper. And boy, he whispers a lot in our society. Boy, he, he whispers so much into our ears. Those demonic presences, man, they come in and they say, it would be okay if you did that. Hey man, it's okay if you say that, nobody really cares. It's okay if you do that in your business, nobody really cares. It's okay if you look there, that's okay. It's okay if you eat that, it's okay if you drink that, it's okay if you go down that path, man. Nobody cares. Just be who you are. Time and time again, all he has to do is just turn our eyes a little off center. And we intellectualize, and we look at the world, and we go on social media and see if it's all right and we move forward. But what that does is that binds us, is that pulls us down, and that, and that puts these chains of oppression on us. And Jesus is like, no, no, you're walking into a world of darkness and you don't even realize it. 
You don't even realize that the light has been getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer because your eyes have been adjusting to it. But that's not what true light is. Don't you remember that, that moment when you walked into a dark room and it was pitch black and there wasn't a spot of light anywhere and all of a sudden, bam, the lights came on and you stand back like, whoa. That's the difference when you come from a world of darkness into the world of light. That's the difference, the feeling that it is when Jesus Christ says, no, 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 that will no longer have power in your life because I am in it. That is what Mary Magdalene experienced. She experienced this life-giving light that removed her from a world of darkness and a world where she was cast aside and forgotten, left for dead. One without hope, one without love, and said, no, 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 I love you, and there is hope in your life because of me. Let me tell you, I think some of us need to hear that message today. Some of us need to understand that it is not over for you. The world of darkness that you find yourself being more and more surrounded in is no, has no power over you. It has no power over you because of the cross, because of Jesus Christ, because he said, not on my watch will my people live in oppression. Not on my watch will my, pe my, my people be bound by addiction, be bound by whatever it is that seeks to take them away from my presence. Jesus Christ says, I want you to have a life and an abundant life. And until we let go of these things and let God fill us with his light, we will not find it. Let me tell you, there's something that Jesus said that I think Mary knew intimately. Jesus talked about this guy who was possessed by demons in his house, and, and, and a, a demon, and he, he cleans the house up, right? He casts it out and he cleans his house up and he gets nice and tidy and he goes, oh, I'm good, I'm good. And that demon goes away for a little bit and he goes, you know, I'm kind of bored. I'm gonna go see what that guy's doing again. He goes back to his house and he finds it empty and neat and clean, but most importantly, empty. He's like, all right, let's do this. So he goes and he gets seven of his buddies. Seven, there's that number again. And they come back and the guy is worse off now than he ever was before. See, what Mary knew was when you come and you pray for this liberation, when you say, I want the darkness out and the light in, what she knew was that wasn't the end of her story. When Jesus walked by and whatever he did say, I heal you, I deliver these things from you. She immediately said, and I need to stay with you. I need to be with you. I need to feel your power. I need to know what you know and hear what you hear and say what you say. I cannot leave your presence because I need to be continually filled with the light. So often what we do is we find that liberation and we're like, I am saved, hallelujah. Check the Jesus box off. And then we walk away and we forget what it felt like to walk in the light. Today is the day that we need to come back to it. Today is the day that we need to open our hearts once again. And some of you may be sitting there going, can you wrap this up? I get it. Some of you may be saying, la, 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 he's not talking to me. But maybe I am. Look, we're coming to a table today. A, a table that Jesus Christ himself laid for us. And, and then he said, as you drink from this cup and take this body, you become one with me. All that stands against you loses its power.
all that stands against you. The things of this world and the things not of this world lose their power when we come into the presence of Christ. When we come to this table and we say, yes, God, yes, Jesus, I want to be one with you. So today, I'm going to invite you forward to this table, but I'm not going to do so as we do all the time. If you're helping with communion, I'm going to invite you forward like normal. Come forward. But the rest of you all want to come with a different mentality and a different mindset and a different heart and a different spirit. And I want you to come. And maybe maybe you're in a great place right now and you're like, man, dude, I have cast that out and I've been walking in the light for a while. I'm good, good. Some of you though may be saying, no, I know where that darkness is. I know where that dimming is. And let me tell you, when you've seen a, a room full of light, it's ironic in this room, and you see one that isn't fully bright, don't you like the one full of light better? Don't you like living in that bright light of the sunshine rather than, no one wants to live in Seattle? Depression's huge up there because there's no sunlight. It's for my in-laws. We want to live in that light and experience that freedom and experience that joy and that gift of life. And so I come, uh, I come asking you to find the strength of Mary Magdalene, whatever it was to say, no, God, I want this out of my life. I want the darkness and the hopelessness and the feeling of loneliness gone. And I want to feel your light and your power your love and your hope. And so come this morning and receive this gift and say, yes, Jesus, I am in. And then if there's something that God has put on your mind that you need to get rid of, that you need to pray for, then go to our prayer team on the side. And this may be uncomfortable for you, good. Shaking off the bad of us is always uncomfortable, which is why I'm still fat. (laughs) Getting skinny is hard. Go and ask, God, remove this from me. Remove this darkness from me. Remove this power that is of this world or that is not. And fill me with your presence once again so that I might walk to your cross and I might walk to your grave and that I might one day hear you say my name in a way that gives me hope and freedom.